Take your Bibles and join us in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Today we'll begin reading in verse 18, which is the last paragraph in 1 Peter chapter 3. We have been considering the exhortation of Peter to suffer well, suffer for righteousness' sake. Beginning in verse 8 of this same chapter, he has challenged his hearers to do that. He has reminded his hearers that they are known by God and loved by God, and they are being shepherded by God, even if it is the Lord's will that they suffer. Many of us have a shallow theology that does not permit us to say those words together. It is the Lord's will that I suffer. And yet, for some it is. Even for all of us, in some measure. So we must be mature in our thinking. We're going to begin reading in verse 18 in a moment, and we're going to reference Noah. Anybody here know about Noah and the fish? Trick question. So Noah has a boat, but he has no fish. Noah, we're going to reference Genesis chapter 6. Most people don't know anything about Genesis chapter 6. However, when I used to do Q&As, since we started doing workshops, I don't have time for Q&As anymore. We'd have this stump the pastor night. Ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. By the way, there were always questions I don't know the answer to. And that would make people so happy. That's my ministry, is to make people happy. (laughs) So... Anyway, one of the questions that invariably would come up is Genesis chapter 6. Who are the people in Genesis chapter 6? And I'm going to tell you today who the people are in Genesis chapter 6. So you'll never have to ask me again because I know the answer to this one. I've already been stumped on this one and I did a little digging. So now I know and now you're going to know. But the implications of that are that this is not uh, a light subject. If you came here today and said, I just like my, you know, my little two quick little happy points and then maybe some little ditty so I can, you know, feel good about my Wednesday next week, well, today's not your day because you're going to have to put on your fighting clothes and you're going to have to fight to understand the point that he's going to make. This is one of the most difficult paragraphs in the New Testament. And we're going to read it today and going to explain it. And you'll never say it's difficult again because Brother Greg is going to get it right for you. I say that with a smile. I hope so. I plan to. So let's read. For for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism 
which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You'll note that this uh, section begins with a conjunction, for, for, meaning that he's tying what he's about to say in 18, 19, 20, 21, to what he's already said in the preceding verses. And what he's already said is that Christ is uh, the one who suffered for righteousness sake and that we are to follow Christ and he is to be our example. And that if in fact we suffer along with Christ, then we are in good company. And uh, he concludes in verse 17 saying, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Because Christ, and that's where he begins in verse 18, also suffered once for sins. So he's going to say, you should be willing to suffer because Christ suffered. And because Christ suffered actually was good suffering, your suffering can and should be good suffering. And because of that, you are yoked to Christ, tied to Christ. However, though, the, the tide rises and falls with Christ, and then that's who you're yoked to, and so therefore your righteousness or your accomplishments are tied to the same ups and downs, as it were. So I have three points. Uh, Susan likes it when I tell you the points in advance and give them to you in writing, but I don't do that. So those of you who love pen and paper sermons, you're doomed. Uh, I'm not ever going to be that guy, ever. Susan rebukes me regularly for this, so you don't have to join me. Uh, join her in that. I, I get it plenty. Uh, she wishes I did, but that's uh, not going to happen. But I'm going to give you the three points, so here they are. You ready? You write them down? Here we go. Verse 18, the righteous suffer for good reason. That's the first thing he says. The righteous suffer for good reason. We'll say more about that momentarily. Verse 19, the righteous rely on the same spirit as Jesus to suffer well. The righteous rely on the same spirit as Jesus in order to suffer well. And then lastly, in verses 21 and 2, the righteous know that victory is in the hands of Jesus Christ. The righteous know that victory is in the hands of Jesus Christ. Now these first two points are going to go real quick, and the third one is going to last for 30 minutes. And you're going to love it. So here we go. Watch this. Number, verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. So the righteous suffer for good reason. Why did Jesus suffer? He tells us plainly here in verse 18, in order to bring us to God. So I would ask the question, did Jesus suffer for good reason? And because it benefits me, benefits you, we would say, yes, Jesus suffered for good reason. He suffered for me. He suffered to help me, to bless me, to save me. But I want you to notice a couple of things about Jesus' suffering that's identified here in verse 18. 
Number one, he suffered unjustly. The scripture says he is the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. Now, again, use an illustration. Let's assume you're in the car. Somebody's leaving church today. They're driving. You're in the passenger seat. This wouldn't happen, but it's an illustration, so play with me, okay? All right, so let's assume that your friend who's driving is driving exceeding the speed limit out here on Hampstead, which is 100% of all the people who drive on Hampstead. And they get pulled over by the police, and they give not the driver a ticket, but they give you a ticket. That wouldn't happen, admittedly, but you would say, this is unjust. And you'd be right, it is unjust. So why should you pay his ticket? Well, you shouldn't. You should fight it. You should argue against it. Because it is not right for the unjust or the injustice of somebody else's ticket for you to pay for that. It's not right. But notice that that's precisely what Jesus does. He is the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. So it is unjust that Jesus suffered. You may say about your own suffering, it's unjust. I've been called to walk this road. I've been called to put up with this burden. I've been called to live with this person or or hang out with this person or be related to this person. Or I've been called to walk with this dread disease or these dreadful circumstances or on and on we could go. It's unjust to which we would all say, yes, it's unjust. And the Bible would say, the righteous sometimes are called to carry suffering because of some injustice. You want to make everything right, everything cause and effect? Be careful what you wish for. Because if you want everything to be cause and effect, Jesus is not going to die for you. Because at some point, the only hope you have is that the righteous died for the unrighteous. And if it's unjust in your world, it's unjust in his world. But he bore that suffering for you. So this is intended to be encouragement to realize that we don't have a perfect world and that we don't get to walk in a perfect world and that injustice is real and we have to bear through it and under it. He also mentions that he is the righteous bearing the sins of the unrighteous. (laughs) In other words, that this suffering of Jesus has some sort of theological, listen to this, theological value. It turns out most of us do not think theologically about life. We don't think that somehow the sins of our life have this eternal damnation attached to it, that the sins of our life have this judgment before God. The sins of our life, we have long since sort of gotten over this notion that we're going to stand before God, give an account for every detail, and so forth. And we we just don't think theologically. We just play fast and loose with our lives and say, well, it doesn't matter. Nobody's keeping score. Nobody knows. Even God doesn't know. As it turns out, God does know. He knows about the sins of them, and he knows about the sins of you and me today. 
And it turns out that Jesus' suffering is because of my sins, not his. He's the righteous dying for the unrighteous. Somehow there's a theological thing going on here, and that your life is interlaced with theology. It turns out that you're not merely just going through life, floating along like a a cork in a stream, or a piece of of twig or something, you're not that. It turns out that there's actually theological value, there's theological purpose, there's theological energy going on in your life, that you matter, you matter to God, He created you for a reason. There's all kinds of theological implications to your life. And the sooner you recalibrate your thinking and to realize that there is a God in heaven, He knows every follicle on top of your head, He knows every detail of your life. The sooner you adjust to that, the better it's going to be for you, the better it's going to be for you, your peace and your joy, your comfort, your eternity eternity with God. Think about this. The righteous and the unrighteous are in play when Jesus dies. Third thing I mention here that that he mentions is that his suffering, Jesus' suffering, does not destroy him. And it's not going to destroy you either. Look at look what he says. He is, verse 18, he is put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The righteous know that the body is subject to death, but my person is not tied up merely with my body. It turns out I have a spirit. My soul lives. And so the enemy of souls may want to kill the body. In fact, he does. He is a murderer and has been from the beginning. But he has no power over my soul. What happened to Jesus? His body is is condemned and it dies. But his soul lives, his spirit lives. So his suffering does not destroy him. It only destroys his body. Now that is not to minimize suffering. Let's be quick here. That is not to minimize Jesus' suffering. Neither is it to minimize your suffering or my suffering. Are we saying that somehow Jesus' suffering doesn't matter? Absolutely not. That's the reverse of what we're saying. It does matter. But it is mitigated by the fact that it does not destroy him. No matter how hard it was, and it was hard. No matter how difficult, how painful, how sorrowful, how theologically sorrowful it was, It does not destroy him. He lives. And the reason he lives is because the enemy of souls has no power over the souls of those who have been rescued by Christ. This is the gospel. That my life is secure in Christ. My hope is in Christ. Kill me. But you can't. And you won't. No matter what you do. No matter how difficult it gets. How much hardship we carry. So the righteous suffer for good reason, just like Christ. Christ suffered to rescue those who were sinners. He he suffered in order to bring me to God. And my suffering has a purpose that's beyond mine, beyond my understanding. Again, harking back to the previous verse, verse 17. The will of God may be, and probably is, that we suffer. It is the will of God. It doesn't mean that God is wrong or that God is broken or that God is unloving or unkind or unjust. It means that we live in a broken world. There's an old adage, if uh, 
goes something like this. If you don't want to get fleas, don't run with dogs. Now, I know that many dog lovers here say, well, I don't believe in fleas, and I take care of my fleas. Okay. On the off chance that you're one of those who has perfect dogs, there's an old adage, and it's an adage. If you don't want fleas, don't run with dogs. You know, we live in a world that is broken. And there's not a person I associate with, including every Sunday when I associate with you, (laughs) who's not broken. And your brokenness affects me. And the reverse of that's equally true, maybe even more so. My brokenness affects you. There's no way that somehow you're insulated from suffering. Because everybody you meet is broken. So you're going to deal with it. And you're either going to deal with it rightly or you're not. And one wrong way to deal with suffering is to say that my suffering is wrong. Eternally wrong. Righteously wrong. Sure, there are earthly injustice, right? We, we would say, yeah, on, on an earthly scale, this is wrong. Someone takes a man's life with malice, that is wrong. Somebody steals somebody's property, that is wrong. Somebody bears false witness against another person, that is wrong. But, but it, it's more than just earthly wrong. It's theologically wrong. There's an accountability before God. And we think God can save me from this. God can rescue me from this. And the reality is he can and he often does, but he sometimes doesn't in this life. He sometimes doesn't take away the suffering or the sorrow or the difficulty or the brokenness. Sometimes he doesn't. But he always brings us, Christ does, to God. So the body may die, the body may suffer, the body may perish, but we will always be safe in the arms of God because of Christ. This is our hope. There's a second thing he says, and that is verse 18, 19, that the righteous rely on the same spirit as Jesus in order to suffer well. Notice how he phrases it. He is, verse 18, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. So the righteous rely on the same spirit as Jesus in order to suffer well. What did Jesus do? He relied on the spirit. He counted on, depended upon, hoped in, the power of the Spirit to rescue him. How do you rescue a person whose flesh dies? Well, their flesh may die, but their spirit does not. And the Spirit of God affords Jesus eternal life, even as we are afforded this same eternal life by means of the Spirit. The righteous rely on the same Spirit to suffer well. Think of this for a moment. How do we get through our troubles? How do we get through our sorrows, our pain, our difficulties? Well, we can do that by listening to friends. Job did that in the Old Testament. It didn't work out well. 
You say, well, I've got better friends. To which I say, I doubt it. Because friends usually come along with worldly advice. You know, I was thinking about your situation, and you ought to. You should have. You failed to. Or maybe you need to not ever make this mistake again. You know, your mistake was marrying that guy or marrying that woman. Your mistake was having those children or or not having children. Or your mistake was, you know, you drank too many Diet Cokes. I drink a lot of Diet Cokes. Your mistake is you've eaten too much sugar. Your mistake is you've gotten fat. Your mistake is that you're going to be diabetic. Your mistake, your mistake, your mistake, your mistake, your mistake, your mistake. You know, that's the problem with advisors. Some of them are reliable and some of them aren't. And you say, well, you know what I need is I need, I need somebody to fix my problem. I don't need somebody to point a finger at my problem. To which I would say, amen, brother. You do need somebody to fix your problem. The problem with advisors or counselors is they may have a fix or they may not, and you really don't know until you sometimes have gone too far down the rabbit hole with their fix. But here's what the Bible says about Christ, that he was put to death in the flesh and his confidence was not in the counsel of his disciples. You know, his disciples' counsel went something like this, Lord, you will never die. Stop talking like that. Bad counsel. Jesus told Peter when he said that, get behind me. And he called him Satan. Peter was well-intentioned, as virtually all of our counselors would be well-intentioned. But that's the problem with all counselors, even me when I counsel. We have limited information. We have limited understanding. We have limited wisdom. And my, 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 we have limited power to change anything. But God, rather, on the other hand, God, by his Holy Spirit, has the power to raise a dead body to change eternity, to rescue thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who related to this same resurrection by means of faith. The righteous rely on the same spirit as Jesus to suffer well. I want to encourage you today to look to your resources that are reliable, not to your resources that are unreliable. I want to tell you something. This is the word of God. Revealed by the Spirit of God. If you want to know what God says, this is what He has said. And we show a profound ignorance of the Bible and then act like we've actually heard from God. God has been very good to this generation. We have the Bible in every potential medium known to man. You can get it in print, you can get it in every other way, and you can have. 50 of them if you want to. But it really doesn't matter how many you have or how how much you have read. The question is, are you applying what you have read to your current suffering? Do you think like God? Do you hope in God? Have you plugged into God and the resources of God as regards your current suffering? 
The righteous rely on the same spirit of Christ in order to suffer well. I hope you will. You'll understand that God has intended that the word of God and the spirit of God, and dare I say, even the people of God, the purpose for this church and every other church worth its salt is that we'll come alongside those who are suffering and say, I don't have all the answers, but I'm not leaving your side. You matter. And I care. And I don't know all there is to know. I don't know all that you want me to know. But I'm not going anywhere. And I'm here. So the righteous rely on the same spirit as Christ in order to suffer well. There's a third thing, and this is where it gets more interesting. You're going to have to put on your pay attention hat. And that is that the righteous know that victory is in the hands of Jesus Christ. I want you to note what he does here, beginning in verse 19. It says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now you might ask, where is that in the Bible? And the answer is, it's not. It's not. So, if we don't have a record of that, what is Peter referring to? Well, he tells us somewhat by the very next phrase. Because, verse 20, they formerly did not obey. They, they, who's the antecedent for they? They are the spirits in prison. So the spirits in prison, they did not formerly obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight, were safe, brought safely through water. So he, he references a situation here involving Noah. I've already told you this story is going to be in Genesis 6, but let me go one, uh, one book over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, and you will note Peter obviously writes first and 2 Peter. This story, this illustration, he uses in both letters. He helps us in the second, the second letter to understand a little bit more about what he's referencing in the first. So let's read 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5. For, because if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. I'm going to stop there. He's going to go on to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah in the next verse. But he, he points out two Old Testament illustrations that are identical to the ones he just pointed out in 1 Peter 3. So 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter 2 both reference the same story back in Genesis chapter 6. So let's turn back to Genesis 6 to understand because this is important for us to think well about it, understand it for our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's just read a few verses here in Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, 
The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. I'm going to stop here. I mentioned earlier that there's always a question asked in a pastoral Q&A, and that is, who are the sons of God in Genesis 6? The second question is, who are the daughters of men in Genesis 6? And the answer is, I'm glad you asked. Here they go. Watch that. They took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Somebody ought to write a song. So, what is this story about? Well, he references it in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in 2 Peter chapter 2. And there he says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So let me step back and try to help you understand what's going on. So in Genesis 6, we have these sons of men who somehow show up on the earth and they have sexual relations with the daughters of men. Sons of God, daughters of men. And they have not only uh, unbelieving children, evil children, they have giant children. So these are extraordinary people, extraordinary circumstances, uh, unbelievable. But at the end of Genesis 6, his point is, God's going to kill them all. He's going to judge them. So why the flood? Why Noah's flood? The answer is because of the evil on the earth. And who contributed to the evil? Who sparked, if you will, an evil, even more evil evil? The answer is the sons of God, whoever they are. So the, the normal way of understanding the sons of God is either they're some sort of, you know, race of extraordinary people who maybe flew in from Mars. That's a totally bogus idea. Or that they are just people that are sort of off the grid of Scripture. Scripture kind of has this narrow story of, of the Jews. By the way, the Bible gets, it was, it's broad in the first 11 chapters, and chapter 6 is in the first 11 chapters, and it's very narrow beginning in Genesis 12. So the notion that somehow these are people that are off the grid of Scripture, that, that God is just not telling us about these people, is again, has Swiss cheese full of holes. That whole story, that old, that old theory doesn't work. But what does work is that these are angels. Again, it's controversial. People argue about this kind of stuff all the time, but the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot. But here in 1 Peter 3, and again in 2 Peter 2, he calls them unbelieving spirits in 1 Peter. And in 2 Peter, he calls them angels. So these angels, I believe have come to earth, and they've had sexual relations with women, and they have perverted the human race. And the human race is now evil, and God sends the flood. Now, why is that important? 
Well, go back to 1 Peter 3. He says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. God's patience is waiting while the ark is being prepared. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you go back and read the story of the ark, you'll find that it took, and there are two primary numbers here. There's either 100 years to build the ark or 120 years to build the ark, depending on how you interpret these Hebrew numbering. But the point is, it takes a century to build the boat. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody next to you builds a boat in their front yard and it takes 100 years, well, that's a bad idea. People are going to talk about you. In fact, people are going to go beyond talking about you. They're going to report you to the authorities. And you're not going to get to finish that boat because the authorities will come in and put an end to you. Well, apparently, Noah lived in the county, not in the city. (laughs) So he's building a boat. Now, what's God doing while Noah is building a hundred-year boat? The answer is God is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting some more. God is about to judge these people with a flood they have never imagined. They don't have any category for it. And by the way, neither do we. But he's about to judge them. But of course, these angelic beings, the sons of God, they're not going to be destroyed. They have to be imprisoned. They are imprisoned, all right. And what happens to them in this prison? How long do they stay in this prison? Well, Peter helps us here. Because Peter says, verse 19, that when Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. God waited and waited and waited for these daughters of men, of men and these sons of God and their families to repent, and they did not. So, God brought judgment against them. And what happens to Jesus? Well, Jesus proclaims to them in prison. Again, we could chase a rabbit here. We won't. It was Jesus, did he proclaim these, this uh, judgment to these spirits from the time of his death right before sundown on Friday? And the time of his resurrection in the pre-dawn hours on Sunday morning, roughly a period of 36 hours or so, did, did, is that the 36-hour window where Jesus went to proclaim these, to these spirits in prison? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Anything we say here is conjecture, so we'll stay away from that. Or, since 1 Peter is written some 30, maybe 40 years after the resurrection of Christ, and Peter is now writing back, he, he may be referring to the fact that after Jesus is raised in the spirit that somehow then he goes and proclaims to these spirits. We don't know as far as the exact timing on the chronology, the, 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 the timeline. We don't know that. But what we do know is that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits. And here's, what he, here's the question that is germane, which is, what did he say? Well, we don't know exactly what he said, but we do know the point he was going to make. And that is, 
here. That is, they formally did not obey. Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He is proclaiming what? Well, he's proclaiming the judgment of God. You'll see that in a minute. But you have to work with me here. He's proclaiming the judgment of God. Now, here's how all of this works together. Think with me for a moment. What do we learn thus far in this passage? We've learned, going back to verse 18, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God. So Christ fulfills all that the Old Testament said would happen as far as the Messiah, and he, the righteous, dies for the unrighteous. That much we know, in order to bring us to God. I would ask you this question. How long did it take after Jesus' suffering For Jesus' suffering to matter in your life. How long did it take for Jesus' suffering to matter in your life? Well, the answer to that is very close to 2,000 years. We weren't around 100 years ago. But when we got here, the suffering of Jesus some 2,000 years ago has been applied to my life. I would ask you this question. How long is it going to take for your suffering today to matter in a way that you understand that it's valuable? I don't know. Let's go back to Noah. The Bible says that these sons of God had sexual relations with the daughters of men. And then as a result of that, God sent a flood and he destroyed them. But their spirits were imprisoned. How long between the imprisonment and the announcement that their judgment is sealed? Well, depending on how you score the chronology of the Bible, we'll round it off some 5,000 years from Noah to Jesus. How long were these sons of God in prison? 5,000 years. How long are they going to stay in prison? Well, they've been there another 2,000 years. They've been there by the Bible's chronology at least 7,000 years. When will they finally be judged? Well, the book of Revelation says that in the end, the prisons will be opened, the, the eternal prisons. Satan will be loosed and God will bring judgment. When Jesus finishes the resurrection, when Jesus is resurrected, one of the things that Jesus does is he goes to the prison where God has kept these, these prisoners, these, these spirits of these unbelieving angels, these unfaithful angels, disobedient, rebellious angels, and he says to them, it is finished. It is done. Your judgment is sealed. And that which you hoped would never happen has happened. And God is going to bring judgment against you. He offers this as an encouragement to those of us who put our trust in Christ. Notice how he ends this section. He says, he, 
He says, you appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected, past tense, past tense, subjected to him. When were they subjected to him? When he was raised from the dead, Jesus was announced by God, not only to you and me, but to the prisoners, the spirits who have disobeyed God millennia before who are contained in that prison, wherever it is, Jesus went to them and proclaimed, you are defeated, you are destroyed, your judgment is secure. My point in saying all of this is the same as Peter, and that is, you better tie your life to Jesus because he's the only one that wins. So the righteous know that victory is in the hands of Christ. And if Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and if Christ has commanded the battlefield and will command the future battlefield, he will step out on the battlefield and with one word, the book of Revelation says, he shall fell them. Done. Die. Judged. I don't know what the word's going to be. But with one word, he shall put an end to that. Yoke your life to Christ. You say, well, I don't have time for that. This suffering is too much. This suffering is too great. This sorrow is too large. Listen to me, friend. I know that there's no end to heartache in this life. And you have no way of knowing how long God is going to ask you to carry the burden of your suffering. You have no way of knowing. And you have no way of knowing the implications for righteousness as you carry it. I do funerals all the time. And invariably I'm doing funerals for old people. <laughs> and old people have these great stories about how they came from nowhere and ended up in Clinton, Mississippi. And they're great stories. I just thank God for them. But I always ask, you know, what did your, 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 your loved one here, your mother, your father, your, they're 80 years old. Their father, if they were alive, would be 100, 110. So I always ask them, you know, what, what did your father do for a living? So this, this father of the deceased, if he were alive by today's calendar, he would have been born about 1900 or so. And they have all kinds of stories. And invariably, their stories trace suffering. You know, we came through the depression. We came through cancer. We, we came through the loss of a spouse. We came through the loss of my brother, my sister. We came through the loss of our money. We came through the sorrow and this tragedy of, of this experience or that experience and so forth. And as there's a refrain. There's no story that doesn't include suffering. And then you draw that bold line to today and you look at the deceased and you say, how did that person end up here with God, with hope, with assurance, with joy, coming through all of that. And it's not always true, but invariably it's true for the righteous. The story goes something like this. Well, my dad, 
this and this, the 120-year-old dad now, if you were alive. My dad, my grandfather was faithful. You mean even though, yeah, he was faithful. You mean even, even though he had to walk through that right there, he was faithful, yes. And it made a difference in this one. And it made a difference in the one I'm now talking to and their children and grandchildren. I don't have any idea what God is doing in your life, friend. But I want you to know something. If you'll carry your suffering well and you'll point your children and grandchildren, your great-grandchildren to Christ, you have no idea what God intends to do. And it's awfully easy to say, I'm going to give God 30 days and if he doesn't do something, I'm gone. But I would merely ask you, aren't you glad that when the righteous died for the unrighteous, he didn't have a 30-day plan. He was looking back 5,000 years to some angels that are in a prison somewhere. And he was saying that this is about you. And he's looking ahead 2,000 years to me and you. And he was saying, this is about you. We want God to operate on our schedule. But the Bible says that a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. And oh, do you know where it says that? Second Peter chapter 3. I don't know much about Peter. But Peter was real good at saying, take a little longer look at what God is doing. Because he's doing it well. Don't jump ship. Don't leave Christ. Because the only one who's going to command the battlefield and the rulers and authorities of this world is right now seated at the right hand, raised by the Spirit for your salvation. Yoke yourself to Jesus. There's no other way. Let's pray. Father, we honor you as the giver of life, the sustainer of life, and the one who has given us life in Christ. We pray for your mercies uh, to be ever present in our lives, and that we would respond to Christ as those who treasure him and to follow him, to obey him, and to be encouraged and strengthened by his faithfulness. Lord, remind us that Christ did it for us, and now we get to do it likewise. For Christ, for our own families, for our own church family, for all who are paying attention, we get to walk the way of suffering, that God may be glorified in our lives. Help us, we pray. We are weak. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.